The court has heard Marion Barter's secret lover denied knowing her when he was first questioned by police. Rick Blum finally took the stand at the inquest into the Gold Coast school teacher's disappearance today, admitting to using more than a dozen different names. Again staying silent outside court. You can finally share your side of the story today, Mr Blum. How are you feeling about that? But inside, Marion Barter's secret lover, Rick Blum, had no choice but to speak up. Lawyers quizzing the 83-year-old about why, when police came knocking last year, he initially denied having any knowledge of Marion or any knowledge of having a Queensland licence under the name Fernand Remichel. Did you take some time to come to the view that you should contact police about having knowledge of Marion Barter? I didn't take any time because I didn't until that moment. I didn't know that Marion Barter disappeared. But you knew when police first contacted you, having had at least two sexual encounters with her, one in the 1960s and one in the 1990s. Yes, I know that, yes. Fernand Remichel is just one of dozens of aliases discovered by New South Wales police to have been used by Rick Blum. Remichel is the same surname Marion used when she disappeared in 1997. Mr Blum admitted today to using 13 aliases, struggling to justify why he changed his name so many times. Is it because you were committing acts of dishonesty here in Australia? No. What other explanation can you provide? I don't know, because it's legal to do so and because probably it was a fantasy. I don't know, I can't explain. Rick Blum also provided a document to the court claiming his current wife, who gave contradicting evidence earlier this week, has memory problems. Counsel assisting, accusing him of trying to distract from the questioning. Is there a reason your wife isn't here with you today, Mr Blum? The inquest has now been running for seven days, but it is far from over. Mr Blum is expected to continue giving evidence for at least the next two days, with the case tomorrow moving from here in Ballina to Byron Bay. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. In the clip at the top of the episode, you heard that Rick Bloom said under oath when questioned at the coroner's inquest that he had no explanation for all the names he's been using across his life course. That's so ludicrous. He has gone into a lot of effort. He's used a lot of time and energy to change his name multiple times by Depol. And he has all these different passports. And yet he answered that he didn't know why he'd chosen to use all these different identities. I mean, it takes time, effort and energy to get all the differing documentation and also to keep track of all the different lives and names that he's using. He knows, in my opinion, exactly why he's been using all these names and travelling so much, using different passports and fleecing so many women using these names and different phone numbers and moving house afterwards each time. It's all part of his MO, his modus operandi, and that has been consistent. He thinks when asked that he can default to, I don't know why I did it. And he thinks he can obfuscate and pretend he can't remember because of his age and his poor me syndrome, hobbling in using a wheelie walker. 
And he most likely believes that people can't see through that strategy. Well, I see you clearly, Rick Bloom, and I hope the coroner and the New South Wales police do too. Also, did you hear that Rick Bloom told the court Diane had memory issues? Well, Diane never mentioned this, nor was it entered into evidence. Also, how ironic, given that he is the one that repeatedly obfuscated and claimed that he couldn't remember key details when pressed. You know, I often see coercive controllers do this. They obfuscate, deflect, distract, flip the script, Davo, and they try and discredit the victim or others who may share information about them that they don't want shared. It's his way, I believe, of trying to control the narrative. If a coercive controller cannot control the person and what they say and do, they try and control other people's responses to them. It's a common tactic used by coercive controllers. It's not for Rick Bloom to bring this up in his evidence at court, but that doesn't stop him. And again, for me, it speaks volumes about him. For me, this is evidence of his coercive control over Diane, and you're going to hear more about that in this episode with Joni. So let's dive back into this fascinating interview where we left off. You'll recall in the last episode, I referenced that all the women that Rick Bloom had manipulated and stole money from, they reported him to authorities at the time, and nothing happened. Well, here's Joni's response to that. If you look at all of the cases, I mean, we we did a very quick sort of grab for our submission for the court. So we did a bit of a table up with all of the women and there was literally zero outcome for any woman within this whole situation that had gone to law enforcement contemporaneously, like within days. It was either a civil matter, so go and get, go and get an AVO, It was, can't prove that he took anything. He sent most of it back, case closed, work priority. Uh, There was a lot of that, like a lot of work priority. So phoning, not getting a response. They're literally right from Australia. We're talking Australia, we're talking Belgium. So it's not just the Australian jurisdiction, it's Belgium too. So it seems to be that when literally hundreds and thousands of dollars has gone and there is zero, zero consequence. Zero consequence. If that was a business of men in a, in a CEO position and if he had have come along and taken 100,000 euro from a business in Belgium, I think my personal opinion was that would be a very different response to a woman such as Charlotte who allegedly had $100,000 taken from her. Yeah, these recurring patterns. Well, let's talk about Diane Walker, because he actually met Diane Walker on a ship again. Um, Her parents were with her, but this was in 1970. And he was actually with Ilona at that point when he meets Diane. Yes, he was. So he was travelling on that ship as, posing as, or could have been employed as, we're unsure, the ship photographer. So what a fantastic role for Mr. Rick Bloom to play on that ship, going around from cabin to cabin and dining room to dining room, taking images of 
happy travel snaps of people um, as they have fun on their cruise ship. Diane was traveling with her parents. Her sister had just gotten married. So they were doing a bit of a jaunt from Australia to Europe on a cruise ship and then back into Australia. And so, yeah, so she was traveling with her parents. So she was being escorted. She wasn't there solo. She was on a family trip. And that is where she met, well, she called him Rick, but he said that she didn't want to call him Freddie because Freddie in Australia was like a frog. So that's why she called him Rick. But I suspect that because he was travelling as his brother, which his name was Freddie David, I think that he probably did introduce himself as Freddie David. And so she didn't want to call him Freddie. So that's why she called him Rick. And just to clarify, Freddie died, his brother, but he took his identity and used his identity. Freddie died many years later. So Freddie was still very much alive and well in 1971. So Freddie didn't die until 1989, so 20 years later. But he did use his brother's identity because the incoming and outgoing passenger cards have got his brother's date of birth, his brother's passport number, and of course, his brother's name. So he did use his brother's identity in coming back once he had gotten out of jail. But she called him Rick, like right from the word go. Yeah, so they sailed together. He returned with Diane. They lived together for a short period of time and then he returned um, back to Belgium or into France, sorry. And Well, he, he moved into her apartment, didn't he? Let, let's just give some context yeah. to that because that's another very important part. He moves into her place for two and a half months and this is whilst he's with Alona, yeah. right? This is whilst he's married yes. to Alona. He starts a relationship with 19-year-old Diane and moves himself into her apartment for two and a half months. I think that's very, very interesting. Then back to Belgium he goes and then has his little apartment in Lille where Alona is reunited with him, with Evelyn as a young baby. And so then they start resume their relationship. So he basically has Diane over here who he's writing letters to and corresponding with. And then he has his wife and his young child in Lille in France. So he's living there with, that's according to Michael John Reed. So, so he's got the, basically the two women. A couple of months later, he's arrested. He's remanded awaiting trial and he eventually goes to jail. So Ilona then divorces him. And that's in France, isn't it? Just to give the geographic location, that's ruined France where he was arrested. So he goes to, to prison. That's correct, yes. And so Ilona then goes and commences a relationship with Michael John Reed. So Willie Wooters is in jail. So then he starts writing to Diane back in Australia and they exchange letters and Diane states in evidence that she's of the belief that from the time that Diane met him on the ship, they are in an exclusive relationship with no other people involved. So as far as she's concerned, she's met this older man on the ship. He was the ship photographer. She was young and they're corresponding. So she's fully aware that he is in prison at that time. And she knew that it was due to fraud offences. 
And so, yes, so they correspond for the years that Willie Wooters was in jail. And then when he comes out within nine days, he is in Sydney, Australia. So he has left, he's literally gotten out of jail and he's basically straight on a plane out to Australia to take up with Diane Walker. So we're up to 1974 now. So 1974, but he's not married. They're not married, Diane and him, at this point. They actually marry in 1976, don't they? So sometime later, they get married. And then Ilona, just so that people can keep track of the timeline, she died on the 13th of July, 1977. So almost a year later. That's right. Which is curious. And then her mother dies and then her brother Attila dies suddenly and unexpectedly. Yes. So her mother died first, actually, in 1976. And then she dies in 1977. And then Attila dies after that. And we haven't got a set date on when Attila's passed away. So they are in rather quick succession to each other, but it certainly isn't within the same year. Well, that's curious to me. Yes. And in terms of Diane, well, they get married on the 20th of February, 1976. And on the 23rd of February, 1976, he applied for, Rick Bloom applied for citizenship. So within three days, he's applying for his citizenship, which he was granted on the 24th of March. Super quick that that's approved, isn't it? Super quick. And especially also considering that as soon as he applies for that, he's looking at this citizenship, stating that he wants to travel back to Belgium because his father is dying. But that's actually not the case at all. His father died in 1942, and his stepfather died in late, much later on to that in 1989. And so, therefore, yes, I mean, again, we've got the rush going the hurry up, I need to go back to Belgium, you need to give me a passport, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, so he certainly is putting the push on here for that citizenship to occur super quick. And especially considering too that he's going in as Willie Wouters, he's then moving his name across to Frederick David de Hedeveri when he's actually entered the country as his brother, Freddie David. So who isn't checking what in in relation to this? Because Freddie David is not on, uh, sorry, Willie Wouters is not on shore at this time in Australia. As far as the Australian authorities are concerned, Willie Wouters is has just come out of jail and he's somewhere in Europe. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just mind-bending. I just find it amazing. You would think that immigration would be a lot more thorough in terms of joining these things up, but it's also the speed journey that really stands out to me. That, you know, on the 20th of February, he gets married to Diane. The 23rd of February... He applies for his citizenship. The 24th of March, his application is approved. The actual citizenship ceremony is performed in Sydney on the 25th of March, the next day. And you mentioned that he said his father was dying. And, th and this is what I mean about this. Always a fantastical story to go with it so that he can manipulate and gets what he wants. And it just seems to me that nobody's dotted the I's or crossed the T's. And people, professionals fall into 
this pattern of just believing his lies. So the question that I want to put and for my listeners to think about is when everybody says, well, why did these women do X or Y? Just remember, there's a lot of professionals here not doing their job, being bought into his manipulations and having the wall pulled over their eyes. Why did they not join the dots or do their job? Because if they had have done Given his criminal history and convictions, he would not have been allowed into Australia and therefore he would not have met Marion or indeed any of the other women. But of course, our focus has been on Marion because she disappeared and that would never have happened if the professionals had done their job. And I believe there needs to be some form of accountability here. Most definitely. I mean, I just find it amazing that I wrote to the immigration minister um, earlier this year in an attempt to, and I essentially summarised the file, providing him with the originals so that he could have a look for himself and get, obviously, get his staff to look at it too. But just the summary of that, I mean, it's all there in black and white. There's no grey, there's no brown, it's all there in black and white, exactly what occurred, and they dropped the ball. The file was lost. So the file went up into, up from Sydney to Brisbane, coming back down to Brisbane, it went into the wrong department and it sat in the archives. That is essentially what actually happened in the early 1980s. It's really concerning. I mean, his citizenship was granted and it's, it's a fraudulent claim and citizenship. And while well, we'll see whether you get a reply from Andrew Hale's office, but it's very clear to me and from the documentation that you've put together, it's very clear that not just one, but a number of people dropped the ball here. And of course, Diane was the perfect cover for him. And Diane being his wife, who I did some of the inquest is on YouTube so I could see for myself and listen to her give evidence. And I, and I have to say, I was very concerned about her, her demeanor and how she presents because she showed, it wasn't just no emotion, it's the fact that she showed no curiosity at any point about Marion and she had said that she did not even look up Marion Barter, which you would most likely Google the person, right? If your husband's being accused of certain things, most people would be curious about that. But, but she said that she didn't. She said that her daughter had told her about The Lady Vanishes and she said that she hadn't really listened to it, which again was just very curious to me because you would want to know more. Most people would. And the fact that all these affairs were spoken about, and she said that she is now aware of them, but she said that she only recently found out. That's what she's saying. She only recently found out about him cheating on her with so many women. The part that's curious to me is that emotionally she's so shut down. And I didn't believe that that was just for inquest. I believe that she emotionally is shut down and closed down. And that's what happens when you, certainly many victims that I've worked with, many children, many adults, often I see their emotional response as being completely shut down because they've had to live their lives through the lens of somebody else and they don't want to rock the boat or upset someone or they're you know, walking on eggshells because they want to make sure they say the right thing. And that's what I saw about her, the I didn't just believe it was just for the coroner's inquest and I don't blame her at all. 
she is thrown into this. There's obviously been a lot that, that's gone on for her, but she's been thrown into this. But for her to show no curiosity at all and to say, well, it didn't concern her, it was nothing to do with her, Marin, I find that a very bizarre response. It's bizarre if you don't understand coercive control. But when you understand coercive control and how someone from the age of 19 has been with this man who gaslights, manipulates, can terrorise, I believe, and terrify people, then it starts to make more sense that her response and the way that she talks is much more likely that she's been coached or there has been previous discussions about what she should say and she's not really sure whether she's giving the right or wrong answers at times. But she's certainly not within her own body and voice. She's not within her own mind because most women would be very upset to learn that their husband of goodness knows how many years has been cheating on them left and right. That whilst they were supposedly at work travelling that they were targeting other women to have relationships with and promising marriage and new lives. And yet she has no emotional reaction to that whatsoever, which is, for me, what I would expect from someone if they were being coercively controlled. It was interesting to me how Mr Rick Bloom said within the proceedings that she doesn't ask questions so when asked about the two wooden trunks that Marion allegedly stored in his garage and whether Diane would have actually seen that, and his response was, oh, oh well, she, she doesn't ask questions. You know, I sort of found that quite interesting too. And also Diane talks quite a, she said quite a few times in the inquest that why didn't you find out about this or why didn't you look into this? And she just said, I trust him. I trusted him. Similar to Janet Oldenburg. I trusted him. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy and health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey chilli and zucchini, and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now, they've done the maths, and Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormeals, F-A-C-T-O-R, factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. Let's talk makeup for a moment. What's your daily makeup routine? Are you an out of the door with a messy bun, a mascara vibe? Or are you coiffed to the max? Or maybe you're somewhere in between like me. 
Thrive Cosmetics beauty products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. Made with clean, skin-loving ingredients, high-performance and trademark formulas, and uncompromising standards. Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are emerging from homelessness. It's a beauty brand and a philosophy that goes beyond skin deep by empowering women. Did you know the first product they launched were false eyelashes, which was motivated by the fact that cancer patients lose their eyelashes? How amazing is that? I love their new sheer strength lip plumping peptide gloss. It gives you a visibly fuller-looking, luscious lips without fillers or uncomfortable stinging sensations. It's also ultra-hydrating, and there are 10 shades to choose from, which enhance your natural lips, six shines and four shimmers. Support and empower women and treat yourself or a loved one. Thrive Cosmetics is a luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 20% off your first order. Well, she knew that he had been in prison and she most likely had been told not to ask questions. That's what I believe has gone on, that Rick Bloom can say, well, she doesn't ask questions. But what if you're being told not to ask questions if you do? What if you're being told not to challenge or not to, that they must just accept what has gone on and not to be curious about it? And that often happens. So even when we hear Diane's voice, I don't know if that's truly her voice or whether that's his, of just years of being with him from the age of 19 when she was most likely impressionable. But you did speak to someone who knew her when she was in Burwash. And of course, in Burwash, that was near Tunbridge Wells, 20 minutes from Tunbridge Wells. I was very curious about the Tunbridge Wells connection. And it was actually Diane who offered up that they were in Burwash in the 1980s. So you shared with me what was said by a friend who knew Diane at um, a playgroup where she was at with her children. They had similar aged children and what she had told this friend or confided in them. I mean, certainly there's some things that corroborate this being an authentic account because she said that they'd met on a cruise ship. She said to the friend that he told her he was a photographer, that they fe she fell in love with him. But she also said that she was fearful of him and that he gave her pocket money and didn't allow her to have her own money, pocket money that he would put petrol in the car, didn't allow her money to do it herself. But he would control everything down to the children's clothes of not allowing Diane to buy the clothes. He would buy the clothes that he had her passport and that was locked up and that he had a room or a, a cupboard that was out of bounds to Diane. But this aspect of controlling behaviour, it concerned me of, of what was said by a friend who really knew nothing else about what had gone on. What more can you say about that, Joni, of, of the friend who shared with you some of that information? 
That was an amazing thing, actually, because Christina Panter, who um, is a fantastic researcher, super sleuth from the UK, she actually sent letters to, I'm pretty sure, almost every single resident in Burwash. So she did the hard yards there, um, walking around posting letters to everybody. And it was actually her that discovered that neighbour. So she lived across the way um, in a farm there. And Rick Bloom would also actually park his lorry. He had a like a, a blue lorry, Bedford lorry, that he would park in at the back end of her farm. So he would be there during the day and then he would leave and he would utilise this lorry overnight and then return it the following day in the early hours of the morning. But he would also be away for like weeks at a time. So Diane would be alone with the children for a week or so at a time and he would give her only just enough money allegedly, to put fuel in that car for her to get into the township of of Burwash and back again. So she didn't have enough money to be able to transport herself any further than just literally, because they were out a little bit from the town of Burwash, to literally go into the town of Burwash and then back again. So it was only a few dollars in fuel that he would put in the car himself. I guess the general impression from the friend was that whenever he was there and present at the house and remembering this was 10 years after they were married, around about, so it's a fair, you know, it's a fair while, she's got two young children, was that she would see her physically shake. So physically shaking when her husband was at the home. When he wasn't there, the minister would often come and visit her and, you know, provide companionship and friendship. But she said it was very uncomfortable in that house. Things were very much at tender hooks and, you know, he would maraud around the house, he'd get angry, he'd be slamming cupboards. Diane went up to get a cup out of a cupboard one time to make her a cup of tea and she must have gone to the wrong cupboard potentially and he came behind her and slammed that cupboard shut with his hand. And so then she had to very quickly and busily go and locate a cup from elsewhere. I just find that whole situation, considering that it was only 10 years after they were married, so she wouldn't have even turned 30 yet, to have been quite a an indicator of the lifestyle and just how, how things were operating. We were also told, allegedly, that he threatened that if she ever left him, he would take the children and that she would never see the children again. So that is a lot. If you consider you've got very, very young children at that stage and that is a major threat. I know that if my husband was to say that to me, I would imagine that that would make me quite compliant to to his wishes. Yeah. And the other question is, well, where do you go? If you have no money or you have no passport, you have no access to things, you don't have a separate bank account, then where do you go? And particularly if you've been moving around and fairly transient, which they were moving around a lot and she didn't have many friends. So it's not like you have this whole network of people that you can go to. And yes, that threat would control and does control many women. We know that. And equally, the controlling of the movements. You know, he really had her, from from this account, it sounds like she was very much locked down and 
lockdown in every way, financially, psychologically, emotionally, and, and entrapped by him. And if he's going off, no doubt he was saying he was doing furniture deliveries, you know, with 38 aliases and all the things that he was doing, targeting all these different women in that. And maybe she was too frightened to ask what was really going on, or maybe she did trust him. But I just wonder whether she knew better than to ask any questions if that's the way that he reacted, you know, slamming cupboards and and oftentimes those physical acts themselves, people might say, well, that's not much, but it can be enough to control someone and make them feel on edge and make them fear that something more is going to happen. So that's another important point. The, the coercive control spider's web, as I call it, there are so many parts to it where women can become entrapped and having two children, that and being dependent in every way entraps somebody. And of course, we talked about Luxembourg, where, was it Luxembourg, where Monique and Diane were living in close proximity. And I'd mentioned, you know, that maybe Diane wasn't really going out much. And therefore, and this again, this account tells us that she was isolated and she didn't have lots of people around her. Um, family and friends. And when you move to new places, you don't have that network of support. And in fact, that pushes you closer to the person that you're with. And I mean that in terms of you become more dependent on them when you don't have, have others outside that network. So coercive control is such a, it's an unfreedom in every way. And just the way that I saw Diane present, because I know a lot of people do blame the wife or the partner and look to them I just saw someone in giving her evidence that was very shut down emotionally and in every way. And often when I work with women like that, I have to really wake them up and it takes a lot. I have to try and get them to a point of anger or some raw emotion to wake them up because they don't know themselves anymore. They've become so used to responding in a way to preserve the other person's emotions and thoughts and keep them happy, that really they're secondary in, in everything. It doesn't really matter what they feel or think, and therefore they become emotionally just totally shut down and almost catatonic. I think too, another aspect of it is that within, so when Rick Bloom set up the family business in 1977 over there in Belgium, I've seen, I guess, in this case, and also that of Janet Oldenburg, Ghislaine, and also Charlotte, that he actually does put women forward to do stuff for him as well. So within the case of Diane, she was actually put on as the director of the company of the family business and her name was put there and she said on the stand that she never had had anything to do with that family business. So again, it's almost as though because she's a clean skin, so to speak, she doesn't have a criminal record, she's from Australia, I think that perhaps he did utilise her in that way too. So not only kept her quite home-based and caring for the children, she also mentions that in Luxembourg she wasn't able to speak the language. So again, she's sitting there, she hasn't learnt French or Luxembourgish, so she said, she said on the stand, I was at home, I was wasn't working, I was looking after the children and that is what I did. And the reason why we went to the UK, she said, was because she was able to then speak the language. 
speak English and find some other connections through the playgroup there with her children. But yeah, in Belgium, Luxembourg and France, where they lived for many years, she never learned, she never picked up French apparently. So she was very isolated. They're also important points because they talk to isolation. They talk to her not being within the culture, the new culture. It talks to him just like Alec Murdoch did with Maggie Murdoch, using her name to move money between bank accounts and just using the name and exploiting and manipulating that person in that process. So it just shows a lack of care. And of course, in the, the 1980s and 8th of August, 1980, we know Rick Bloom's writing love letters to Monique Cornelius. So whilst Diane's playing house, as it were, he's off targeting other women and writing love letters to them. Within the two months prior to that love letter being written, Diane would have, looking at her daughter's birth date, have just gotten newly pregnant with her daughter. So again, newly pregnant, and then he is writing that sort of letter, which I must add is basically a mishmash of all other famous writers and poets' words, all just mishmashed into the letter So there's basically very little original words in that letter. It's just a whole lot of stuff from other people all put together in a big mishmash. But he is doing that at the same time as his wife, yeah, being newly pregnant. Yeah, but that doesn't surprise me about the, you know, taking different parts, plagiarising different things from various authors, etc. The song in You Are a Song in a Man's Testicles, it's certainly not the most romantic thing I've ever heard and it just smacked of being lifted from somewhere else, you know, but uh, it doesn't, doesn't surprise me. Now, Rick Bloom was asked at the inquest as to why he didn't volunteer the information about having a sexual relationship with Marion. And we we talked about this before because he kept bumping on sexual relationship, didn't he? He kept wanting to challenge that, that it wasn't a relationship. But it had gone on for a number of months. And in the end, the coroner had to concede it was sex and for him to be able to answer. But he was asked why he didn't volunteer that information. And he said that the police had never asked him. And that failure to disclose and him saying, I had no idea of the importance of it. I mean, that was that was his statement. I had no idea of the importance of it. It was just, you know, talking. What can I say? I mean, again, there's just no admission, no responsibility taking. And of course, you know the importance of it if somebody disappears and you're having sex with them. He understood absolutely the importance of it. And then his lying changes across time. And I think that that's interesting just to point out that on February 2022, he was asked if he had personal knowledge of Marion wanting to start a new life. And he said that he had no knowledge of that. But yet on June, in June 2023, he tells the coroner that he believed Marion to be alive. And he said, and I'll quote him, she wanted to separate from her family. She didn't want anything to do with any member of her family. So that was his, what he changed his position to be. Which again, clearly he doesn't remember the lies that he's told. How can he say he had no knowledge to then, actually I do have knowledge and she didn't want to have anything to do with her family. Quite a bit was made out of that, I found, within the court. So the legal counsel for both Sally and also counsel assist 
testing did ask about that extensively. And I guess my view is that in sitting there for a lot of those court days physically with him, you know, seeing this exchange happen, the body language is quite different when you're sitting in a court compared to when you're watching it on YouTube too. It's quite different. And I just think that my personal opinion, Rick Bloom will never, ever admit to a single thing where there's no evidence backing that up. He will only go so far And then my other personal view is that if there's someone there that he wishes to upset or hurt in any way, he will do so. So I guess my personal belief is that he said that in order to hurt or harm Sally by saying that Marion didn't want to to have anything to do with her family. I feel that's my own personal opinion, but I feel as though it was basically like a final dig at Sally to hurt her. That could be a very naive assumption, but that was how I how I felt. I mean, I think he has put roadblock after roadblock after roadblock in front of him having any involvement in her disappearance. So first we have the man at the petrol station and we have the, he's an, a Muslim, Algerian, Nigerian. Then we, you know, as I've said before, we have the Korean Bacchanalia banquets. Then we have the missing man with the motorbike at her home. Then we come to this, that, oh, he, she never wanted to see anybody again. Again. So he just constantly tries to put things in front of and in between him and her, even though he ultimately has admitted to being the man who had the last relationship with her before she disappeared. I mean, it's as simple as that. Yes. And the creation of distance, that's what he's doing. So the, the first part of what you said, and for me, it's about him controlling the narrative where he can and getting that dig in right? He's obviously listened to The Lady Vanishes. He's obviously followed the case. And he said originally that that he hadn't, but I believe that he must have to say that, to change the story of, no, I didn't know anything about what she was planning to. Yes, she wanted to separate from her family and I believe she's still alive. So that is a dig and it's what he can control. But in terms of the putting distance between, that's what he's doing of creating these different men. It puts distance between him and Marion. But we have to remember, you know, that that to me points to deception. But there's also the aspect that I don't forget about, which is the man in the car at McDonald's has never come forward. He's never come forward. No. The police have stated within their documentation that they believe that that was him in the car. Yeah. So the point is, if it was someone else, they would have come forward, right? So as Rick Bullum puts all these other men in lieu of him, that's what he's trying to say, all these other relationships that she had, we have to remember the man in the car that's significant, the man who Sally says that her husband is told to leave Marion's home in the middle of packing up. And then she sees her at McDonald's with a tall man in the car. Now that's gone out, obviously, publicly, but that man has never come forward. Ergo, it most obviously is him, right? To me, as a criminal behavioral analyst, that's obviously him. So he has to create this distance. And that's what he's doing. He's almost leaking out this information by doing, well, he is leaking out this information by doing this. It's actually very instructive that this is the way that he's behaving, which just screams that his handprints are all over this. 
Otherwise, there would be no need to do it. No need at all. Absolutely. And also throw in there this so-called meeting. Well, first it was 1964, then we moved up to 1966, and we finally landed in 1968 about him supposedly meeting for a brief affair in Switzerland with Marion and how met again in the car park um, in 1997 and she hugged his neck and grabbed onto his neck because she recognised him as the man that she had met in 1968 when she had an affair when Johnny, you know, when Johnny Warren was off doing his so-called training camp. Like, what was the vehicle of that to actually engage and state that he had actually had an affair with her way back then in the mid to late 1960s? So it almost appears as though he's actually going above and beyond what is actually required of him in the questioning by police. So why did he do something like that? That part of it has always confused me. Well, having worked many of these cases, my belief is it is just to muddy the waters. It's an obfuscation. Don't look over here, look over there. And if you throw enough spaghetti at the wall, people sometimes get confused in the process. It's also a way to discredit Marion as well, that she was unfaithful and disloyal, but it's really a distraction technique. And that's what he's very good at. What he's not great at is keeping track of all his lies. And we have to remember that these are all lies and manipulations, but in, a, in amongst it, there will be kernels of truth. And I believe, you know, and this is my thought, having watched him lie and yes, I wasn't in the court, but I pay very close attention to baseline behavior and when people lie and how they lie. And if you take Andre Flam, who he said was in a wheelchair and had dementia, and then she appears giving her evidence and it's very clear she's sharp as a tack. She remembers everything. Therefore, everything he said about her was a lie. But in amongst it, there were some kernels of truth, right? So he has lied to the court under oath which is why I say he's a pathological liar, because he has been caught in those lies. He lied about saying the women are lying. And we know that he's lying when he says that, saying that the women are, are lying, that because of the Lady Vanishes, they've all come together and they're all out to get me, that sort of thing, which I've heard a million times before. But of course, the Lady Vanishes didn't exist when they gave their first accounts, when they reported to police individually and independently, and they'd never spoken to each other. So he is a proven liar and manipulator, but yet he barefaced lies in court under oath. He has no regard for that. He just needs to create as much distance and muddying the water as possible, which he does by even coming in with his frame, his walker frame with hero on it. Everything is intentional in what he does. So he is the proven liar. He is not credible. His account cannot be accepted, but the timeline speaks volumes about what's gone on. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking, Joni, and the Japan connection, and I know you're going to go over and ask these questions, but when I started looking at the hotel, Hotel Nico, I did wonder whether that's where potentially Marion and, and he got married. Because the fact that Marion used the letterhead to send to Sally, it had to have significance to her. That's my belief. It had significance using... Out of all the paper and postcards or cards she could have bought or used, she used that, which I just wonder whether that 
was something that was had sentimental meaning to her, which is what she, it was almost like a message that she was giving Sally. It was meaningful to her, even though she couldn't say what had happened. And so I'm glad that you're going to ask those questions to see whether there is any record, because I believe if there's anywhere in that timeline where they did get married, that most likely was the place. So it's going to be very interesting to see what, what you dig up there. Yes, we're definitely, I mean, the Chiba prefecture is where we will go first because that is the prefecture where the Hotel Nico was. So that's certainly the first thing on the list to go and um, seek, most certainly. And I think, you know, with Ghislaine, and we've talked about Ghislaine and the fact that he did try and steal her money, but she also had protected people around her and she had made disclosures to people but wanted to give the money to her son, for example, and he never showed up. But she calls the police and then he's found to be in Amsterdam, right? Everything about her account just seems to map across to Marion. And the more I was thinking about it, the compliance check that Rick Blum does with with women well, often the women are compliant and they are malleable and they are of good, they operate in good faith. But what if Marion had married him in Japan and then she discovers that he has a wife and he has children like Monique did and she has given him money and given up everything, then there's a chance that she would not be compliant or malleable. And Sally and I talked about that, that she did not believe that she would be quiet about that. So then you've got somebody who potentially would challenge him, which would mean that there was quite possibly a very different exchange between them. So I think drawing these things together from conversations with you, you know, one of the things that those things stand out to me, that even though there's a time distance between Marion and and Ghislaine, but the pattern of behavior is consistent and it's so unusual It's so unusual in terms of when you draw it together. It's not just everyday type of behaviour. But Marion sold her house. Do we know where that money went? Or is that the money that was taken out of the account? Because I do wonder about tracking Marion's money as well and overlaying it with tracking Rick Bloom's, you know, following the money on both sides. So what happened to Marion's house sale money? Did... Was that the money that was in the bank account that was being drained or was the money elsewhere? Yes, it was. So we've seen Sally located the real estate agent for that sale and she actually got all of the documentation. So she did a brilliant job there in locating Louise Hartnell, the real estate agent. So yes, so that money went into Marion's colonial state bank account. And on the 7th of June, she actually opened up like a, it was called a long-term saver account. So it wasn't, so she actually moved the money into like a long term investment account and she could get a maximum of $5,000 a day out of that account at any given time. So that house money was literally like locked away in a second brand new account that Marion opened and we've seen that through tracking all of the account numbers and things. So it wasn't in her everyday account, it was locked up and well and truly locked away. It's a bit grey because we don't have the bank statements, but there is still money left in that account to this day, which is in unclaimed money with the taxation department here in Australia. So $80,000 
was alleged supposedly taken out. We don't know for sure. But this is the thing. The whole amount was not taken. The account remains open. It wasn't closed. So the account's still open to this day. Only $80,000 came out. There's $14,880 still within that account that's been transferred to unclaimed money. There's a couple of thousand dollars still left in her everyday banking account and there's a zero balance on her credit card. That is where, where things lie financially. So it's a big question for me. Why didn't she just totally shut those accounts? Why didn't she set up a new account in her new legal name, Flora Ballaramical, and transfer the funds to her new account? There's a whole lot of question marks around the banking and around why it seems as though things were sort of shifted midway and she didn't go the whole way in moving moving the money from one, her Marion Barter account into a Florabella Ramakel account. There is still money left. They haven't been closed. And if you wanted to start a whole new life under a new name, surely there would be some kind of record of a closure and then a recreation of accounts in your new name. It just makes zero sense to me why things were literally just left hanging. The banking stuff to me is interesting, fascinating, and I wish that the duty officer at Byron Bay Police Station had have actually gotten those details, got the bank statements and put them in her file at the time because we would possibly know a lot more now than what we do about the banking. That's really interesting because it, it sounds to me like it was interrupted, as in it's left undone, unfinished, but Marion most likely did have a plan, but that again just smacks of she is disappeared. It's not of her own doing, unclaimed money, the selling of the house so quickly, but tracking her money, her accounts, and overlaying them with tracking Rick Bloom and the man of many names... There will be some overlap there somewhere, I'm sure. But hearing Jeanette's account of him going with her to take money out, all these things are very important when thinking about Marion. And if anything, from talking to you, for me, things still point firmly in Rick Bloom's direction. In fact, I'm now at 32, what I would call circumstantial areas in terms of similar fact evidence. And that is very significant in a case like this. Sometimes you may only have a handful. And I think when I spoke to Alison Sandy at The Lady Vanishes, I think I was at 14. And then I went up to 20. And then I spoke to you and I went up to 30. And in this conversation, I've gone to 32. And so with any case, you, you're exploring and investigating and asking questions. And I'm always looking at, you know, the things that we know about. But of course, as we've discussed, there are still a lot of things that you don't know about. But I know you and Sally will hopefully get to the bottom of some of them in Japan and in other parts of the world asking these questions. But yes, if only people had done their jobs, Joni, and had taken this seriously right from the start, perhaps we wouldn't have been in this situation 26 years on. Yes, because if you actually wind back and think about the fact that Marion from the 2nd of August... If you are in the camp of that she did return to Australia, you know, her life wasn't ended in the UK or Europe, she did return here, you have got almost three months 
no car, no house, a suitcase, maybe a few tea chests somewhere. She didn't have access. She had packed her life up here. So she was in his area within 20 minutes of his home address for nearly three months with absolutely no no resources, no nothing. And why is that? When she had access to all of that money, she was very excited at supposedly about her trip overseas. It was going to be a year-long holiday trip of a lifetime to be anywhere in the world why was she within 20 minutes of his house using his name, an alias that he admits to getting a driver's license within Queensland under the same name? So to me, those are the compelling things that I always focus on when all of the other stuff, you know, the complexities and the maybes and the ifs, they fall away. I just think, why was she within 20 minutes of his home basically two and a half months of doing what? Like, if you actually think about it, that's a long time to be away, out of contact with your family and being in a very sort of foreign environment and literally within an hour or an hour and a half's drive of your daughter. Why is that? Why are you there? Yes, they're very good points, well made. And for me, it talks to something went on and wrong and was interrupted. Her plan of what she thought it was going to be changed. And it doesn't sound like it was her hand that created that change. It sounds to me like even if we take Rick Bloom out of it for a moment, something created that change for her. She went off on that trip of a lifetime where she was furiously on that accelerated timeline, getting everything ready to go overseas. So why would she return? And why would she not tell Sally? For me, that is a huge question that she's created this space of, I may not call you for a while, but was it for the thing that brought her back or was that the curveball? And she comes back and there's a challenge that goes in and then something happens. And it may well not have been planned on either side, but something happened and interrupted the timeline that she was on and the plans that she had. And it had to be something pretty major to bring her back when she was so full of going away. It had to be significant and for money to be left in an account and for her children not to hear from her, not to attend the wedding. There's something that took her off track. And yes, it's sinister. And we've got somebody who lies about the basics. If we bring Mr. Rick Bloom back in, he lies about the very basics on the timeline of being with her for what purpose? The only reason that someone would do that is if they have something to hide. And he has put, as you called it, roadblock after roadblock. What he's doing is trying to create distance, but he's put so much energy into that. It reveals its leakage about who he is and that he has something to do with it. And that cannot be ignored. An innocent person wouldn't need to do that. They just stand by their truth. They say the one thing that is the truth about it, they don't have to say anything more. But he is overselling, overselling in everything that he's doing, which points to more deception and manipulation. And that's exactly why he must be thoroughly investigated, this timeline, his web that he's created around himself. That all has to be pulled apart, as you have done. I think it's all worth mentioning too, Owen's birthday. So when we're zeroing in and focusing down on that time post August the 2nd, 
that money was withdrawn literally 72 hours before Owen's birthday. So to me, that is also quite significant because if Marion had have done like what she did with Deirdre, her sister, sent a present, sent a card, made a phone call, wishing Owen a happy birthday, Sally has said herself that no one would have been overly concerned until possibly Christmas. So that would have given Marion you know, like another eight weeks in order to do what she needed to do. So I find that also quite curious that 72 hours prior to that, that bulk of that money is withdrawn. And the other thing that I find curious is that August seems to be quite a busy month. So the flight's coming back in on August 2nd. There's those withdrawal, the day almost daily withdrawals that happen. There's also the RACQ membership that just got cancelled. So either via phone or her going into an office in August. So that to me is something that you would do almost ticking off a list, things to do before you go back overseas sort of thing. So that to me was curious because nobody else would know that. Nobody else would think to do that, to cancel a roadside assistance policy for your car. But that happened in August. Then towards the end of August, we have the 1st of September, we have the final credit card transaction. And then there's absolutely nothing at all. There's no activity in September whatsoever. And then Midway through October, we get the opening of the deposit box by Bloom at the Ballina Commonwealth Bank, and then the final money goes on the 15th of October. And I just find that series of events curious, the fact that there's no movement in September, no movement halfway through October. So I guess some people have suggested that perhaps August was where something may have gone a bit pear-shaped and that the transaction in October may have been someone else's doing. So again, that's another option as well as far as what's actually happened here. Yeah, so your thoughts around whether, I know lots of people debate whether it was Marion that came back into Australia and marked up the passenger card as married, temporary resident, housewife in Luxembourg. Now, I believe your views are that she did come back based upon what you've said. Yes, that's definitely my view. Yes, I believe that to be the case too. I guess I just don't see any benefit in taking on someone's identity, like who was this person? Because it certainly wasn't Diane de Hedeveri. She was very much back here. She hadn't travelled. She had two children. There were swimming tournaments that she attended over that time because her daughter, I can see her daughter's name in lists. So therefore, who was this unknown female that took on Marion's identity and travelled with it. That to me is a huge risk, travelling on someone else's identity to do what but then actually never leave the country again. Like I don't really understand. I, I just can't rationally see what would be the benefit of that. Wouldn't you travel on someone else's identity and then go in and take the money under Marion's name. I'm not sure why you'd need to travel because to me that's bringing the so-called victim right back into your own patch, literally minutes from your home. Like why would you do that? Why would you have the so-called victim come back into the country? She's better off just swanning around Europe and everybody thinks she's still in Europe. 
see what I mean? Like I don't I don't understand why you would bring her back here if she didn't actually come back. That's just my personal opinion and I may be naive in that too and not have thought of everything. What do you think? Well, I do think she came back, but I wonder whether something happened in in the UK and he came back and then she followed him back. I don't believe it was necessarily him bringing her back. That's too risky. But there again, he's gotten away with things for a very long time. So he doesn't necessarily assess risk as most other people would do because he has gotten away with things. But I am curious about whether things went wrong and she followed him back and there was a confrontation and there could have been some time in between that. And perhaps she didn't feel that, or she felt she could sort things out herself and didn't want to talk to anybody about what had happened when it became clear that he had a wife and children or that the circumstance had changed and that she had got married to him and that didn't stand and maybe he had taken some money from her and there was a confrontation. For me, that's the only obvious explanation of her being a non-compliant and feeling angry and aggrieved about things and that's where there could be a departure in behaviour. But on the timeline, it's difficult to place where that may have happened. I mean, the the money transfer could have been an electronic transfer, I believe. Was it something that could have been set up earlier, but the money transfer happened later? It's difficult to say 100% because there are no good records or people to ask those questions of. But I believe it could have been money set to transfer from an earlier date to that date. Now, I don't know the significance of that time window. So that's, again, where Rick Bloom of looking at what's going on in his timeline, going on behind the scenes, and sometimes these things aren't obvious or evident. And there will always be questions that we don't know and we cannot answer with a case because the only person who has all the answers, while it's Marion, the other is a pathological liar. And as Monique said, every time his mouth is open... He's lying. We cannot trust him. So, and and that for me, again, is just framing it for my listeners, because here you have somebody who said everybody else is lying bar him when he is the one that's been proven to lie time and time again about even the most basic innocuous thing. That to me is what stands out here, that we have a consistent pattern of his behaviour. And mainly with the women, we've had a consistent pattern of their behaviour. But with Marion, I'm not sure she would have been compliant and she would not have... Well, I don't believe she would have said nothing if she had found out that either he was married or that there was some some form of deception. I believe that she most likely would have challenged that. Sally is certainly of that view too. She wasn't someone to literally not do anything or walk away or move on with things, especially if you consider, like, especially if that $80,000 had have come out of her account, that was a lifetime of saving for her. So it wasn't like the other times when her marriages had sort of broken up. She'd always walked away with something. So, you know, within the divorce proceedings, half went one way, half went the other way. But this time, I think if she had have literally had all, you know, a lot of that money removed, 
50, 51 career is sort of not coming to an end, but it's sort of at the other, at the top end of her career. Yeah, I just sort of wonder how much outrage that would have caused within her too, if he had have removed all of that money. Yeah, very, quite different to his her other marriages. Yeah, well, she's gone from selling everything, changing everything for this exciting life to it, it being something very different. I think we have to remember Marion was just full of excitement for this new life and her this new chapter in her life, her going on this trip of a lifetime. And therefore, if she had such hope and expectation, and if she had met someone who she genuinely thought she was going to spend the next chapter of her life with, if if something went wrong and something went on, that could have upended her totally. That's what I believe happened in the change of, well, why did she come back from this trip of a lifetime? There was nothing that meant she had to come back, nothing at all. She had created that space and that window of time. So that's what everything to me just points to a plan interrupted and that plan being interrupted by not something that she had done or created. There doesn't appear to be any evidence to suggest it's from her end and therefore it has to be from someone else, something else or someone else. And you just cannot ignore 32 key points for me, which talk of past behaviour looking at future behaviour, but circumstantial evidence. And those things just cannot be ignored. So perhaps, you know, when we we do one more session, Joni, and we'll talk about what, for me, those points are that are significant. But I also just want to think about Diane and, and his children who have also been victimised in this in the sense that they've been lied to so many times. And whether Diane shows that emotion or that feeling, but that can't be easy to know that the person that you may be trusted or certainly that you've been with since you were 19, instead of him being away working and doing the things he said, it's become very apparent that that's not what he was doing and that he was cheating on her left and right. We don't know how many other women there are, but I'm sure for for Diane and for her children, this can't be a very easy process, even if Diane says, well, it doesn't really concern her and acts as if it's it's no big deal because this is a, a huge deal and Marion is at the centre of it and that's why it's an even bigger deal. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I think that would be great if we could come back and look at those key points because it's, su- it's such a huge case with so much information and so many rabbit holes to go down. It would be really good to come back and just do a summary of those points. That would be really good. Absolutely. Well, I would love to have you back. I know my listeners are really wrapped in this case and I think we'll come back laser focused and go through those points and you can add other things. I know the timeline is so extensive, the work that you've done. I'm sure there's some other things on reflection that you would want to share. So we will definitely do that. So make sure you tune in, lovely listeners. Joni will be back and we'll let you mull over all the things that we've discussed and come to your own thoughts and conclusions. And please do let us know on Facebook. And if you have any information about Marion, please do contact the Marion Barter Missing Person page, or you can contact Crime Stoppers as well on 1-800-333-000. I still maintain someone knows something and there's still information that we can put together to really unravel and understand what happened to Marion Barter. So until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct.
Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude. <laughs>